Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Burnaby Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 127th episode of the Nauticast titled House of Leaves Part 2, an analysis of a clash of kings Daenerys 4 in which everything somehow somehow gets weirder and scarier and trippier than last week. I promise we're going to come back safe and sober, Jeff. I would never lie to you. I appreciate that because I do not want to do the drugs because drugs I hear are very bad and we should stay away from them at all costs. We will leave a trail of breadcrumbs behind us when we go into the House of the Undying. It's the only (laughs) safe way to do it. Absolutely. So as always, this episode is brought to you by our Not A Small Council, our Hand of the King Wolfman, Zach. Grand Maester Tim Bob, Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards. Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N. Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Ward of the Waves. Captain of the War Galley, Nightwolf, the ship that stalks the seven seas. And wielder of the Valyrian Steel Trident Summoner, the blade that brings the Deep Ones. Sir Keith J, Master of Whispers. Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws. Archmaester Jume, Healer of the Lesser Poxes. Ragged Michael, Ward of the North. Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone. Scarlet the Other Red Woman and Mistress of Whispers. Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, Ward of the West, Harold the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bainfort, and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the gym that was promised, the High Bearded Priest, Lord Jake Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena Valyria, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Warren the Beast and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Adamus, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, a Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Source of Delica, Low Energy Dent, True Master of the Bainfort, and True Master of Coin, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Rainbow Commander, the Ladies and Gentle Dems, Haldiver, the waiter for T.W.L., A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crow's Eye, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Colgarian, the first of her name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overwork, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portress of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blunter Paints, and Maker of Drawings. Lord Adam T., Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpio, the Redfield, Defender of the Letter of Kin and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse-Faced Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Lady Ashley, the Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshall, Harrison, Absent, Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave, Rob Stark, the Cadaver King and Horror of Harrenhal, Olaf, proponent of establishing a feudal pseudo-democratic system of great councils wherein every count votes. Sir Tim, the knight who is guided by voices. Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club. Lord Jean the Splendid, Master of Coin, Warren of Tampa Bay. Lady Anna, the Glovely Castellan. Pat Ironwood, the Blood Royal and Guardian of the Boneway. Lord Charles Tyrell of Highgarden, Lord Paramount of the Mander. Defender of the Marches, High Marshal of the Reach, Warrior of the South and the Heir of House Tyrell. Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn. Squid Pro Quo, Master of Zorse, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Hedrigal, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, and our newest member of the High, uh, our newest member of the Not a Small Council. Everyone say hello to Squire Matt S, future Sir Matt S, the one who will bring balance to the kingdoms. Thank you to all of our Not a Small Councilors, and welcome to Matt for, and welcome Matt to the Small Council. Thank you as always to our Small Councilors, and uh, thank you so much to Matt for joining us. We're so happy to have you. We absolutely are. And our spoiler warning, as we say it every week, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three decade novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. 
anything and everything. So we've gone heavy on questions for many months now, so we thought we would do a quick pause on questions and instead read some of the recent reviews we've gotten on Apple Podcasts. And thank you so much to everyone for the reviews, Yuli. Uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, we absolutely really appreciate all of you folks who leave reviews for us. Again, it helps us helps others find our podcast. And more importantly, it makes us feel good about ourselves or bad, but only once in a while, only once in a really, really long while. So our first review comes from the Iron Bank, who writes, subject, avatars of Romney and Beto discuss a song of ice and fire. <laughs> Jeff gives a 10,000 foot synopsis of chapters from the perspective of a rhino. Emmett follows with an hour of Marxist talking <laughs> Emmett follows with an hour of Marx's talking points from an apartment decorated with posters of Westeros. I love I, clear, clearly when I think Beto O'Rourke, I think I think hour long Marxist talking points. <laughs> you know, you know that picture of him after he dropped out where he has like a fail beard and he's like yes. sitting with his dog. He's like spilling cereal on the couch. <laughs> that version of Beto O'Rourke, I feel like I, I line up with just fine. And I have to say that there are no posters of Westeros in the background. To if you're watching our weekly live streams, there's no posters of Westeros in the background too. So I don't know the Iron People Bank. People just assume they're there. Like yeah, that's the history of Westeros has the wonderfully decorated yes. uh, backdrop. You may be thinking of. Yes, uh, but oh, uh, so yeah, great. Clearly, You've been there, right? Clearly. You've been down to their their room with the, with the posters already. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I love oh, it. So cool. Yeah, these nice yeah. places, wonderful. Absolutely so, phenomenal review. Hell yeah! Thank you so much to, to the Iron Bank uh, of the Evening Orchard Vale. Writes a noun of plurals. I stumbled on this while looking for an excuse to reread a Song of Ice and Fire for the fourth time. Within a few weeks, I was caught up and delightfully hooked. I love the chemistry between Emmett and Jeff. Yes, even in spite of how much they agree. <laughs> seven out of seven would recommend. <laughs> That's yeah, I, I, that's a really good uh, review. I like that a lot. I, I love the seven out of seven. It doesn't make any sense, which of course appeals to me because numbers are arbitrary. Giving it a ten out of ten. Why do we give it a ten out of ten? I don't know. It just seems like it's numbers an are made number. up, man. Exactly. Yeah, and I'm not the one who's who does the drugs. Unlike Danny in this chapter. This is true. You're very straight edge. I know this about you. Mm-hmm. Not Brendan B. Fish. Note that not Brendan B. Fish writes. Probably the best podcast is the subject line and just says, just two handsome and cool guys, mostly Jeff, talking about a great series of books. Not as good as the Cautioner's Tale. Well, well that's just as, objectively true. As as the uh, as the poster wrote, it is not Brennan B. Fish, which is that, what, that t-shirt that everyone says, like, all of your questions are answered by the t-shirt that I'm wearing right <laughs> exactly. now. Exactly. It's not Brennan B. Fish. What, what's, what's more to know? Exactly. It's, it's so we really appreciate the podcast. And of course, the Coster's Tale is coming next week or the week after that. Who knows? But of course, Silverwing Flyer writes, Anodicast offers great content and insights into every aspect of A Song of Ice and Fire, the plot, the characters, the overarching themes and writing techniques. Jeff's readings, e.g. Catalan's Moonlight Sonata from Game of Thrones, which was her 10th chapter in that book often highlights specific aspects of writing that take my breath away. Emmett provides articulate and wonderfully profound big-picture insights on characters and themes. Emmett and Jeff balance each other's pacing perspective to make it for a content-rich podcast that holds my attention. Five stars, guys. July 29, 2020, updating my previous review from five stars to five plus plus stars. One plus one is greater than the seven. <laughs> Again, seven reigns supreme, of course. Yes, it's uh, the lovely review of Silverwing Flyer. And of course, uh, we, we appreciate the, the five stars and uh, we appreciate all the reviews that we, we get from you from you folks, like I was saying at the start of this this little series here. And we will get back to questions next week. But we wanted to take take a moment and just thank those of you who, who leave reviews for us and have a podcast and other venues where you get your, your, your podcasts from. Uh, it means a lot to us. And again, it helps others find us. And then finally, it's, it's not a review, but Pedro G, a listener from Argentina, wrote us a really kind email several weeks ago telling us about how 
thankful he is to have gotten to know us during our weekly live streams during a recent family emergency. And he's been inspired to actually write his own theories about how the Brotherhood of Banners might crown Gendry as king and wins, which is a theory I love, and a detailed analysis of the mad dogs of the Lords of Westeros. And at some point, he's planning to become a Lord Confessor as a patron and is looking forward to every weekly live stream. So we wanted to, I wanted to specifically shout out Pedro and let him know that our thoughts are with you and your family during this time. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Pedro, and, and best of luck to you and all our love, of course. Mm-hmm. And as Jeff said, thank you all for your views and keep them coming. We're going to return to answering questions for our Sworn Sword or higher level patrons over at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf, where you can sign up to get bonus episodes, show notes, special posts, and merchandise. Mm, as we announced last week, designs from San Rixian, a.k.a. Mallory are friend are in and if you're one of our sworn sword or higher patrons you can vote on the winning design that mallory will then colorize and finalize and that actually that voting ends tomorrow so if you're watching this live stream this is your last fucking chance to actually vote on what design you want to see and just as a little kind of like if you you're voting and you see that the some totals may look a little high some people are voting and there's one clear favorite because there is one clear favorite among the designs here a special announcement came from Mallory as she told me last week that she'll be colorizing and finalizing not just one, but two designs. So if you're watching this live stream and are a Sworn Sword or higher patron, go and vote now. Oh, and also if you're a Sworn Sword or higher patron, you'll of course be getting a free, ter- free t-shirt from us with that winning design on it. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash notacast ASOIF to find more. But... Enough about Patron, but of course, thank you to Mallory. When we last checked in with Danny, she had come to the House of the Undying for truth and wisdom. Then she did some drugs. Why would she do that? Let's find out what happens when she enters the house in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings to Daenerys for Part 2. And look, <laughs> this is going to be one of those synopsis things that it's barely a synopsis, arguably not a synopsis. The scenes for most of this chapter are of incredible importance to the story and for Danny. So, of course, I am doing nothing wrong as I have only done one thing wrong in my entire life. Now, Danny is allowed to enter the House of the Undying. She enters and finds herself in an anteroom with four doors. She takes the door on the right. Then she finds herself in an identical room. Another door to the right, and she finds herself in a small antechamber with four doors. She takes yet another right door, realizing that she's in the presence of sorcery. The fourth room was an oval instead of a square, like the first three rooms, and she finds six passageways. She she chooses the rightmost chamber and finds a row of torches, but only doors to her left. Drogon flies forward, but is only able to fly a few feet before crashing. Danny moves after him, but as she moves, she sees that the carpet is mold-eaten, and she hears what sounds like rats running in the walls. Drogon hears this too, and he shrieks about it. There were other sounds too. Fucked up dystopian sounds. A crashing sound like someone was trying to break through a door. Dissonant piping from probably headless Johannes Bach coming from behind another door. Danny rushes past those doors really, really quickly. Danny realizes that some of the doors were open, and it's a big-ass passage, but I'm just going to read because you got to pay attention to this because this is really important to all of us on Ice and Fire. I will not look, Danny told herself, but the temptation was too strong. In one room, a beautiful woman sprawled naked on the floor while four little men crawled over her. They had radish, pointed faces, and tiny pink hands like the servitor who had brought her the glass of shade. One was pumping her thighs, another savaged her breasts, worrying at the nipples with his red, wet mouth tearing and chewing. Farther on, she came upon a feast of corpses, savagely slaughtered. The feasters lay strewn across overturned chairs and hackled trestle tables, a sprawl in pools of congealing blood. 
Some had lost limbs, even heads, severed hands, clutched bloody cups, wooden spoons, roast fowl, heels of bread. In a throne above them sat a dead man with the head of a wolf. He wore an iron crown and held a leg of lamb in one hand, as a king might hold a scepter, and his eyes followed Danny with mute appeal. Hey, I mean, can I just quote the rest of this part of the House of the Undying? <laughs> I mean, I know you're going to say no, and I'd have to say no for myself because that defeats, you know, the purpose of a synopsis. But really, True. really, it's ah, so, so good. Moving on, Danny comes to another room, and she knows this one. She remembered those great wooden beams and the carved animal faces that adorned them. And there, outside the window, a lemon tree. The sight of it made her arc, made her, the sight of it made her heart ache with longing. It is the house with the red door, the house in Bravos. You hear that? No sooner had she thought it than old Sir Willem came through the door, leaning heavily on a stick. Little princess, there you are, he said in his gruff, kind voice. Come, he said. Come to me, my lady. You're home now. You're safe now. His big, wrinkled hands reached for her, soft as old leather, and Danny wanted to take it and hold it and kiss it. She wanted that as much as she had ever wanted anything. Her foot edged forward, and then she thought, he's dead. He's Ted, the sweet old bear. He died a long time ago. She backed away and ran. Oh, I'm so excited about this, but let's progress forward for the moment. Danny moves through endless doors to her left, iron, wood, carved doors, and plain with pulls, locks, and knockers. They were all closed. Drogon kept pressing her on until she can't run anymore. And then she enters a great bronze door that looks grand. She presses through it, and she finds herself in a stone hall. The skulls of dead dragons looked down from its walls. Upon a towering barb throne sat an old man in rich robes, an old man with dark eyes and long silver-gray hair. Let him be king over charred bones and cooked meat, he said to a man below. Let him be the king of ashes. Drogon shrieked, his claws digging through silk and skin, but the king on his throne never heard, and Danny moved on. Viserys was her first thought the next time she paused, but a second glance told her otherwise. The man had her brother's hair, but he was taller, and his eyes were a dark indigo rather than lilac. Aegon, he said to a woman nursing a newborn babe in a great wooden bed, what better name for a king? Will you make a song for him? The woman asked. He has a song, the man replied. He is the prince that was promised, and his is the song of ice and fire. He looked up when he said it, and his eyes met Danny's, and it seemed as if he saw her standing there beyond the door. There must be one more, he said, though whether he was speaking to her or to the woman in the bed, she could not say. The dragon has three heads. He went to the window seat, picked up a harp, and ran his fingers lightly over its silvery strings. Sweet sadness filled the room as man and wife and babe faded like the morning mist. Only the music lingered behind to speed her on her way. And that is the synopsis, in quotation marks, of A Clash of Kings to Nera's Four Part Two. You know, I think we really nailed last week in setting up the visions that we were going to meet in this portion of the chapter. And I'm just going to, you know, pump my fist here and say, yeah, let's get into it. Let's do that again. Let's delve into some of, this most, some of the most potent imagery in all of A Song of Ice and Fire, shall we? Oh, can we please? <laughs> As I said about Aaron's drug-induced dreams in our series on The Forsaken, this is my favorite kind of thing. This is my taste in art encapsulated. <laughs> Psychedelic imagery that stimulates the senses and the intellect in equal measure. The author working unabashedly to bring you to your knees with awe. It's Gravity's Rainbow, it's 2001 A Space Odyssey, it's episode 8 of Twin Peaks The Return, the one where they have the, the nuke and the source of everything and the imagery just keeps getting crazier as it goes. I love when artists ambitiously seek the structures undergirding all existence and convey their insights not with dry monologues nor leaden irony, but with a rush of awe. 
religious in its fervor, even as the manipulations behind divine imagery are ruthlessly exposed. We will do our best to interpret these images as Dandy does, but the House of the Undying is foremost to be experienced. Yeah, it, it really, really is. Even if you're not interested in prophecy or foreshadowing or any of those aspects that George is putting into this chapter, this is very much a visceral sensory experience in, in reading this portion of The House of the Undying. And of course, getting on to next week where we'll do more of The House of the Undying. And I've been thinking about our questions at the end of part one with regard to how Shade of the Evening actually worked, that substance which is spurring Danny or preventing Danny from seeing these prophetic Things And it dawned to me after we recorded that episode that Daenerys already has prophetic ability as seen in A Game of Thrones when Danny has dragon dreams before she actually brings about dragons at the end of her arc in A Game of Thrones. In between A Game of Thrones and A Clash of Kings, George R. R. Martin published The Hedge Knight, which showed that Darren the Drunkard also has these prophetic dreams, with all of his siblings also having quote-unquote dragon dreams too. Then Maester Aemon tells Sam about his own prophetic dreams and a feast for crows, and later we learn about Daenys the Dreamer from the World of Ice and Fire who dreamed about the Doom of Valyria. And then finally in 2018, when he was doing his promotion tour for Fire and Blood Volume 1, George R. R. Martin gave credence to the fan theory that Aegon the Conqueror dreamed of the others, and that's what caused Aegon and his sister wives to invade. In a word, Daenerys' prophetic ability seems tied to Targaryen slash Valyrian, or rather her Targaryen slash Valyrian bloodline. And the Shade of the Eating may then be the substance which unlocks Danny's magical Valyrian Targaryen prophetic ability or allows her to access it more easily. Now, magical bloodlines is a topic which has some pretty shitty, awful racial and racist connotations in fantasy and in fiction. And I have to be completely honest, I generally don't feel qualified to talk about it, though I do recommend an article from Tor, which is linked for all of our patrons, which addresses the topic of race and touches on magical bloodlines in Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire. I will say that George may have drawn inspiration from Frank Herbert's Dune, in which, and I'll try to keep this as lightly spoiled as possible, as I assume a fair number of you haven't read the book and plan to watch the movie before potentially reading the book. The organization knows the Bene Gesserit attempt to create the perfect bloodline to bring forth the Kwisatz Haderach, who will then have prophetic abilities when brought on especially, but not exclusively, by Spice Melange. And that may be where George got his inspiration from, and a special hat tip to Travis Grant and Frank from the Not A Slack for the conversation on this, which inspired this particular uh, introductory monologue by me. So as we talked about last week, this chapter is in dialogue with science fiction and fantasy that has gone before. And today we enter the world of pure fantasy through doors, rooms, hallways. Dune is the, the source material for so much fantasy and science fiction. It makes perfect sense that George would draw from that when he's trying to get at what he loves about fantasy and storytelling in general in this chapter. I think you're right on. And as I said last time, the entrance Danny takes into the house, into the house of the Undying emphasizes the metafictional nat- nature of this chapter. It's a wall like a face, a door like a mouth. It's as though the House of the Undying is alive. A person unto itself with its own head and mouth. And now it's swallowing Danny whole. It represents George on one level. Danny is entering his mind and accessing his creative process. But it's also a commentary on how art takes on its own life, separate from the author. It belongs, eventually, instead to the audience. Engaging with art is similar in certain respects to engaging with another person. There's the surface, and there's the subtext, and there's your own projections, and they all kind of swirl around each other. The wall shaped like a face, the door shaped like a mouth. These are warnings to both Danny and the reader to treat the House of the Undying like a living being whose nature we could influence, and such is the nature of art. 
Exactly. And, uh, you know, this is the not a slack pay, uh, tribute episode, so to speak, because Lord Travis, our master ships and uh, one of our, our not a small council and co-host of the Plantos podcast. Are you listening to that podcast yet? You should. Brought up a really excellent point in the not a slack and on Twitter in which he said he reread the House of the Undying this morning and caught this parallel. Danny enters the House of the Undying through its door, which is an oval mouth set in a wall fashioned like a human face. This is reminiscent of Bran passing through the Black Gate at the night fort to the lands beyond the wall. The Black Gate is a weirwood tree's face and its mouth opens and swallows Bran and company to pass through, metaphorically swallowing them, very much in line with Danny being almost consumed by the Undying as well. And that was just such a great point. I wanted to bring it up here because I think it speaks to the hidden danger from within for Danny in the House of the Undying and how she nearly gets consumed by the temptations of secrets and wisdom and magic that the, the Undying offer her. But of course, this led me to a long tension in my own big brain, thinking about how George is layering the metaphor even more, speaking to how Daenerys is surrendering herself to the temptation of sorcery and magic yet again, and it won't be the last time. Bran too will be tempted by his magical ability to embrace the dark side of the werewoods and the cannibalism of the old gods and the power of controlling another's brain through Hodor, as we saw in season six, and we'll likely see in the Winds of Winter. And again, six months back, we covered John at White Tree, and what did he find inside the giant mouth of the werewood? Bones. Death. But wait, what happens at the end of this chapter? Travis kind of alluded to it in his comment, but the Undying tried to literally eat Daenerys Targaryen. That's what that's essentially close to the end of this chapter. So Danny passing through the mouth that is a door is a metaphor for the temptation of Danny being consumed with magic and prophecy. And then the metaphor becomes horrifyingly literal by chapter's end. It's that dance between the literal and the figurative that you were talking about really well last week, and Danny is walking that knife's edge between them. She walks into the face, into the book and finds a series of identical rooms, each with four doors, and she takes the rightmost each time. To stick with my House of the Undying as story metaphor, <laughs> these rooms are a table of contents. They're offering ways into the story. It's not linear, though, so much as choose-your-own-adventure. Its direction is dictated by Danny, a.k.a. the reader. The door she goes through, the path she takes through the story... That's going to determine its meaning. And same goes for us reading A Song of Ice and Fire. Girls have gone canon going through A Song of Ice and Fire, not chapter by chapter like we do, but going through each POV in turn. Mm -hmm. They come on really different great insights that we would never come up with in part just because they're going through those POVs and they can see subtle building nuances and arcs developing specifically within characters, whereas we're jumping all over the place. So we miss a lot of that stuff, I think. And that's just the path you're taking through the story. George is again following the same strategy as Mark Danielewski in House of Leaves. The story is not a mental structure, but a literal physical one. And so your actions, not just your thoughts, determine what direction the story takes. And as in House of Leaves, George knows that the most effective way to communicate the uncanny is to mix the supernatural with the banal. In House of Leaves, our first POV is merely alluding to the horrors contained within the later ones. We follow the Russian nesting doll of POVs inward in search of something to justify all this creeping dread. When we finally get to the Navidson house, the titular house, the first signs of something wrong are mere spatial anomalies that are just kind of confusing. It's not frightening. It's not monsters. Danny is convinced by these rooms that she is in the presence of sorcery. But there's no big magic show. There's no lightning bolts. There's no elevators full of blood. It's the spooky similarity between the rooms, the way they're absolutely identical, even though that shouldn't seem to be possible, especially given that this whole place is decaying. That speaks to magic. The final room she goes through is six doors. Because as you go deeper into a story, the possibilities start adding up at first. 
Later in the chapter, they're going to narrow. Danny's going to be trapped in her hallway, and that perfectly mirrors a story structure. It expands, and then it contracts. You have so many chances until you start taking them. We can't know what's waiting beyond the other doors. House of the Undying is, is not a line, nor even a circle, really, but just a, a web of alternate dimensions. Every time Danny makes a choice, it splits off into another quantum universe, another door. And that's a potent metaphor for how the choices we make determine what path we can follow next time. This insight applies to real-life decisions as well as art. And so from there, Danny enters a hallway. That's like the main thrust of the story, you could say. Narrative is offering the illusion of choice, all those other doors, but they're never taken because the author, even as he gardens his way to the end, he knows where she's ultimately going. And both that final room and the hallway are dominated by decay. The room was made of worm-eaten wood. It was oval, more womb-like than the previous rooms shaped like squares, like pages, like screens. So Danny is birthed into the hallway, which used to be lavishly decorated, she said, but now it's all gone to rot. As with the appearance of the House of the Undying from the outside, this speaks to how immersion in drugs or immersion in story can blind you to dust and decay settling in all around you until you don't realize that the narrative was a lie and it's, it's fallen apart. What carpet remains here is muffling her footfalls, because Danny is the reader, and the reader's not actually present in the story, so our footsteps don't make noise. And that just allows Danny to hear the sounds and read the story all the more clearly, and that's not necessarily an enjoyable process for her. Narrative clarity offers disturbing sights and sounds, as Piat Pri warns her. There are rats in the halls and walls of story. And then there are the doors, which, as she's going along this time, are all to her left. In the House of the Undying, going left disturbs the flow of time, which is forward and thus rightward across the page. Many of these doors are closed, yet she hears music behind one, something banging to get out behind another. If you think of the House of the Undying as George's mind, George's creative process, this is like a song stuck in George's head, and an anxiety relentlessly gnawing at him. This is his visualization of those feelings. Danny doesn't get to like fully experience those, and neither do we. They just serve to whet her appetite and ours for what comes next, serving as kind of a little proof of concept so Danny's intrigued in the doors to come. The House of the Undying is ultimately about temptation, after all, the lure of power and clarity and drugs and story. Absolutely. And of course, all of those temptations serve to potentially trap the reader and of course also trap George in terms of like the writing of A Song of Ice and Fire. And that's something that he's at least seemingly meta meta here attempting to avoid in his own writing. And when George talks about writing and when it's going well, I, I think he's hitting some of the, the exact points you're alluding to. In 2018, he was interviewed by, by, by Guardian in the UK in which he says, when I really get rolling, I get into the world. The rest of the world vanishes and I don't care what I'm having for dinner, what movies are on, what my email says, or who's mad at me this week because the winds of winter isn't out. All that is gone and I'm just living in the world I'm writing about. But it's sometimes hard to get to that almost trance-like state. That kind of imagery of George hitting a trance-like state should remind us of the chapter that we're in, Danny's entry into the House of the Undying specifically. When George and Danny enter into the muse is that the daemon of inspiration into the world of the Undying, the rest of the world vanishes. So again, George is continuing to hit those meta notes that we saw from last week from the introduction of this chapter and rolling with it as Danny progresses forward into the House of the Undying. Yeah, it's a perfect way of capturing what she's feeling here. It's artistic, creative immersion. And so what Danny sees when she succumbs to temptation through that first door is a provocation aimed at the audience refracted through the dictates of her character arc. She's looking through an open door, a cleansed eye, a portal to truth, 
and she sees a naked woman being assaulted by four doors. I held off on discussing Piat Puri's description of the House of the Undying last week, so we could talk about it here, where it really becomes relevant. Other doors may open to you. Within, you will see many things that disturb you. Visions of loveliness and visions of horror. Wonders and terrors. Sights and sounds of days gone by and days to come, and days that never were. Remember, nothing in Karth is as it appears. So were these actually rooms at all? They depict events that vary tremendously in terms of scope. Danny's room in the house with the red door is of a very different size than the Frey feasting hall for the Red Wedding vision or the throne room for the Mad King vision. How does this physically work? What seems more likely to me is that these are projected tableau, fantasies that function as deceptive mirrors, just like the rest of Karth. The House of the Undying is fantasy made flesh. These rooms are 3D artworks designed to give the illusion of space and depth and reality. The essential falseness of art does not alter its ability to reveal truth, because as you said uh, regarding the things they carried last week, art reveals aside the truth that the bare facts cannot, and must use artifice to do so. Danny is tempted by the image. She feels controlled by it. She has to look, she says. She has to look. What does it mean to feel like you have to look? What does it mean to bear witness? Is that a passive act, or is it one charged with moral significance? Generally, I think plays and movies are better at asking those questions, because they are visual arts, with performers made for mass audiences. You you feel like an observer more. I think about how watching Hamlet live becomes a profoundly unsettling experience during the play within the play, as you watch some actors play actors, and other actors play audience members like you, and the act of engaging with and recognizing oneself with art is, is explicitly addressed. Or think about how a cinema as an art form really just like spraying like Athena at Zeus's forehead from the Lumiere Brothers film of that train going right at the screen that terrified the audience who thought it was real. That's where the idea of movies as an exciting art form comes from. <laughs> and A Song of Ice and Fire might be unadaptable in George's eyes, but... There's no denying how consistently and enthusiastically he draws from the visual arts. The House of the Undying in particular is unabashedly a series of movie trailers and montages, with George's edits, so to speak, increasingly imitating cinema. The maturation of each art form, in turn, is tied to its ability to recognize itself in the mirror and address that primal power over its audience. But the novel works a little differently, coming from the fantasies of a generally single mind. It's not as visceral. It lacks performers and physical space. Books just don't ape reality the way theater and cinema do. So in order to address issues of spectacle, voyeurism, and responsibility at the heart of the audience experience, books have to get really self-conscious about it. (laughs) As with uh, Italo Calvino's If on a Winter's Night a Traveler. This book openly addresses the reader from the very start, in the second person, as you. It opens with the first chapter describing the process of you choosing the book in the bookstore, buying it, going through your day before you sit down to read it. As the novel continues, it fragments into various short stories of many different genres, each of which is supposedly the actual novel proper. But things keep happening to you, the reader, as you're being described and interrupting the story. Oh, the binding turns out to be wrong. Oh, it's a different book altogether. Oh, you suddenly got caught up in a legal scandal and can't read anymore. And this isn't just a snarky game with the reader, although it very much is that. It's a way of addressing the borders that are always being crossed between art and audience. 
Calvino argues that old novels specifically are the only way to access the continuity of time, because they take place after the past, which in which time just stopped, and the future, in which we live in now, in which time exploded. And the form of his book is in the latter era looking back. Calvino pulls tricks in this book like uh, describing a train station with all the trains, like, you know, billowing out smoke. And then he says, oh, the smoke is obscuring the next paragraph. I can't tell you what happens. And that's, you know, that's not dissimilar to George's ink stains that cover up very certain revelations, uh, you know, in, in the world of ice and fire. And as he goes along, Calvino calls attention to how he has chosen not to describe certain details about his settings and characters, knowing that the reader will just fill in the gaps based on what we're given. And he writes, watch out. It is surely a method of involving you gradually, capturing you in the story before you realize it. A trap. Calvino describes the process of reading as being perched in between obliviousness and awareness. Because pure obliviousness prevents one from finding any pleasure in the book, really. But becoming too aware of the machinations at play will ruin the pleasurable reading experience. As such, observing art is both a passive and active experience. You are taking in another world as someone who is not present in it, but that world would not have meaning, nor really even exist, without someone to observe it. Danny, as audience member in this chapter, allows George to argue that the act of looking, and hence reading, carries with it sacred significance. It carries moral weight. To transcend humanity, cleansing the doors of perception, is to enter into a world of manipulated images, fantasies, and this is also the reading experience. So how do you engage with a manipulated image? Piat said Danny's visions would combine loveliness and horror. Wonder and terror, a very common phrase in the Song of Ice and Fire, wonder and terror. As such, we see in this vision beauty defiled and under assault, opposites juxtaposed and united. Piat also said these visions would be unstuck in time. They would speak to the past, the future, the present, or days that might never come at all. And Melisandre says as much about the visions in the flames. So magic isn't pure bunk, but nor is it unclouded direct access to time. It's both. It's one and then the other, complicating the ability of both character and reader to interpret what they see in a, you know, linear space-time, <laughs> cause-and-effect sort of way. On one hand, the meaning of this first vision is quite clear. You know, the woman represents Westeros, the dwarves raping her are the kings at war. I mean, that's clear from the number of them, four, and the constant presence of rape in A Song of Ice and Fire as a signifier of irresponsible authority using terror as a weapon. Kind of an interesting chronological note here is that since there are four kings, we could deduce that Danny enters the house of the undying after Renly Baratheon. Very mysteriously, who did it? Passed away quite peacefully in his sleep. And this is important because for so much of the timeline of A Song of Ice and Fire, Danny's story practically exists unmoored from the timing of the regular story that's occurring in Westeros. However, there is even some ambiguity in this sense we find in A Feast for Crows, Archmaester Benedict arguing in a very academic way that they shouldn't be calling it the War of the Five Kings since Renly died before Balon Greyjoy crowned himself. So perhaps this chapter occurs before Balon crowned himself. But I, I think given the context of the four kings committing violence is symbolized by the dwarves, this would happen after Balon was crowned since Renly's army hadn't done any overt violence yet anyways while the Greyjoy while the Greyjoy invasion was particularly violent and horrible but the interesting thing is that the Greyjoys are not alone in their sickening use of violence and rape 
Certainly not. You got the Theon's Reavers in the north, but also the Mountain's Men in the Riverlands. And even the small folk use rape as a weapon when striking back. Just ask Lala Stokeworth. And this is what it's all about, this vision conveys to us. This is what they're really doing over in Westeros. Don't let them tell you differently. All the kings with their factions and intrigues and their elaborate (laughs) justifications. No, they're rapists on a continental scale. It's a staggeringly bleak image. Cathartic in how it strips away so much to get at a core concept denied by so many. A completed puzzle composed of pieces from each limited POV. It's a coherent conception of war. One that does iron out individual nuance to give us, as you say, the 10,000 foot view. As I said, it's provocative, like a political cartoon or even a work of propaganda. Angrying up the blood by comparing disputed territory to a ravished woman, playing on sexual jealousy as much as ideology, which propaganda images often do. I mean, sexual and political needs have more in common than we'd like to think. You know, Dr. Strangelove wasn't just for fun. (laughs) Stannis and Joffrey are both working out sexual frustrations in their own different ways. So too is Tyrion, this book's protagonist. Yet this vision that Danny sees is not an objective constant. It is a reflective image that takes its true meaning from its audience, in this case, Danny. Danny herself is a beautiful woman who has suffered sexual assault and will continue to suffer the threat of it throughout her story. Part of the whole idea of the sacral medieval monarch is that at some level they are the land and the land is them. If Westeros is a woman under assault from its current rulers, well, so too is Westeros' rightful queen. In other words, Danny. Looking in that woman, I think, is less likely to see her as someone helpless she must protect, and maybe more likely to see that woman as a mirror of herself, or maybe both, kind of complicating that issue entirely. Those usurpers are attacking not only Westeros, but also me. And, as as she will say in A Dance with Dragons, that makes them all one and the same, the usurpers' dogs. Equally guilty, equally deserving of punishment, no nuance, the 10,000-foot view. She doesn't literally step into this room, into the story, But she projects into it, as the reader does, resolving archetype and metaphor in her own image. What other conclusion can she reach from this? This is my story. That's me. The war is a problem only I can solve. You can see her kind of taking that lesson away. Is that why she is seeing the image as she does? Does the House of the Undying just happen to contain a propagandistic distillation of the war going on halfway around the world of interest to no one in Karth besides Danny herself? Or is whatever lives in the House of the Undying kind of taking that image from Danny's head? At least part of it. Does this image exist in a pure and violet form, or is it being shaped in part by the perspective viewing it? Such are the elemental questions of art, reflections of the mysteries of the human mind. Does the author create the text, or audience, or both? Where is the border? It's invisible and perhaps illusory. Godlike vision is linked to illusions and projections. Danny does access truth, but someone might be controlling it. There's a man in back of this place, shaping the narrative around her. And even if she is shaping it in part, well, that kind of reveals her more than empowers her. And this is the dilemma of seeking truth. What Danny sees in this vision is true in the sense that it is a philosophical perspective on real events, but these self-conscious, reflective aspects of it complicate that truth. I think you really nailed how George is complicating our perspective here and integrating questions into whether the visions are true or are simply true to Daenerys or whether they are some sort of meeting in the middle between these two objective realities and what Danny's kind of 
personal reality of what she's experiencing here. And Danny is inspired by this vision. It shapes her worldview going forward, albeit, I think, subconsciously, because Danny's never going to think about this vision or even mention this scene in the books ever again. In contrast, she will think about other visions in other spots quite uh, quite, authoritarily, authoritarily, quite authoritatively. But this filters into her subconscious. It shapes her ideology and her outlook on the world. As you were pointing out, Danny continues to think about her father's enemies as quote-unquote usurper's dogs as late as the Dance with Dragons in her conversation with Barristan Selmy and Danny too. And then in her final dance chapter, Danny finds herself alone in the Dothraki Sea. It's my belief that in writing Danny 10 from A Dance of Dragons, best chapter in all of a song of ice and fire, no offense to the forsaken, George was specifically inspired by events from the House of the Undying. Danny is alone in the world, encountering ghostly visions brought on by, wait for it, a possibly mind-altering substance as consumed by the berries. You guys are seeing the parallels, right? And in rereading these passages, I remembered one scene that is criminally, criminally underanalyzed by the fandom. The next morning, Danny woke stiff and sore and aching with ants crawling on her arms and legs and face. When she realized what they were, she kicked aside the stalks of dry brown grass that had served as her bed and blanket and struggled to her feet. She had bites all over her, little red bumps, itchy and inflamed. Where did all the ants come from? Danny brushed them from her arms and legs and belly. She ran a hand across her stubby, her stubbly scalp where her hair had burned all had burned away and felt more ants on her head and one crawling down the back of her neck. She knocked them off and crushed them under her bare feet. There were so many. I, I can't reread that scene from A Dance of Dragons, Danny 10, without seeing the woman from the House of the Undying with the four dwarves or the or with the four dwarves. In the House of the Undying, Westeros and Danny are the women are the are the woman, as you pointed out so well, and the woman is defenseless against the violence being done to her. However, in Danny's case with the ants, she is no longer helpless. She has agency, and her enemies have become ants to swat away. On one hand, it's good that Danny is growing in her agency and her ability to fight back against her oppressors. On the other hand, and there's always on the other hand with Danny, the ants are nuisances and irritants, and she kills them all. Making the metaphor and given the context of the end of A Dance of Dragons, with Danny as a dragon rider and her literal embrace of fire and blood, actually a metaphorical embrace of fire and blood, this note reads, this parallel note reads as a disquieting note for Danny's overall story and for her future in A Song of Ice and Fire. Those are great points. That's going to be like a 10-part episode whenever we right. get there to that Danny episode, Danny chapter at the end of Dance. And it's a question of perspective, whether she's looking at ants as ants or people as ants. And there's a, a, definitely a metaphor being set up there. And, you know, that Danny chapter at the end of Dance is similar to The House of the Undying, except it has one foot very firmly grounded in material reality, just Danny's body and what Danny's body is going through moment by moment. And The House of the Undying has its, its, its head pretty firmly in the clouds. As far as that stuff is concerned, it's all more about the imagery and Danny's Danny soaking it in. And so we get to the second vision. This is the vision of a of the slaughter at a feast and you know, a king with a wolf's head. <laughs> Who is that? What could, what could this be? <laughs> the, the second vision acts in a contrapuntal fashion to the first. It's a sharp dialectical relationship that throws everything into question. It is again an image of violence, acts of chaos and cruelty that seem to demand some form of redress, whether political or divine in origin. As the Red Keep is soaked in the blood of those who built it, the House of the Undying, ironically, is built on death, the mortality its denizens struggle to transcend. And just as the shade of the evening trees outside parallel the weirwoods, the cave of the children beyond the wall works on the same grisly logic. Bones, said Bran. It's bones. The floor of the passage was littered with the bones of birds and beasts. 
But there were other bones as well, big ones that must have come from giants, and small ones that could have been from children. On either side of them, in niches carved from the stone, skulls looked down on them. Bran saw a bear skull and a wolf skull, half a dozen human skulls and near as many giants. All the rest were small, queerly formed, children of the forest. The roots had grown in and around and through them, every one. A few had ravens perched atop them, watching them pass with bright black eyes. And the House of the Undying works much the same way. The roots are in death. These are the keystone images of world-shattering violence that dominate George's creative mind, infesting the rest of the story not only directly in terms of plot, but also in terms of theme and mood. Here is what my story is about, he is saying. If that first image of a Westeros under assault by the kings was zooming out to show us the present, the war, in the most broad possible terms, this second image zooms in to the near-future fallout of the war. Here is the end result of that squabbling over spoils. The rape of Westeros by the remaining kings. Psychedelic drugs often make one feel like one understands everything. There's you know, connections between all events, large and small, that you're putting together. And this vision is of the Red Wedding, of course. That's obvious to the rereader. It's the slaughter at dinner, the Iron Crown, the wolf head especially. We have entered the thorny gauntlet of Red Wedding foreshadowing, one of the most impressive narrative gambits George pulls off in A Song of Ice and Fire. The single most iconic sequence in the series is so iconic, so memorably dreadful, such an inversion of the state of nature that it beats down the walls of space-time <laughs> itself, sending signals back into the past. It's a gravity well of pure evil next to which all else is judged, haunting the whole story. And I think to return back to a point we were talking about last week, we can see that George has very clear ideas about the Red Wedding while he's writing A Clash of Kings. We're not talking about the ambiguous things that George is being like, yeah, I'm going to touch about the Mummer's Dragon someday down the road, or even things that are events that are occurring in Storm of Swords, like A Thousand Voices Crying Out for Mother, which of course is talking about Danny's Mice a moment from A Storm of Swords. These things were not necessarily firm in George's mind. The Red Wedding seems very much firm in George's mind. You have everything from the overturned tables to the beheaded corpses. We think of only Daisy Mormont when we think of things like that. And of course, Rob Stark having a wolf's head sewn on, on over, over his own head, his own beheaded head. Back of a head? I don't know what the word is. Um, and that leads us to, again, that imagery coming back in A Storm of Swords where Tyrion hears about this and refuses to tell Sansa about this as well. But here, again, we just have all the imagery that George is going to use for the Red Wedding. George is very, has, very clear, has very clear ideas of what's going to happen. It's very clear here as well that George has abandoned this idea that Rob Stark will die in battle, that Rob Stark is going, somehow going to go out in a glorious type of way. There's no glory in what happens in the Red Wedding. It's just the setting and a dead king. It's Rob Stark, our friend and mine. Even as the thread of Danny's perspective on Westeros at war remains consistent, the emotional tenor has flipped from the previous image. The first image told us that the kings are the problem. They are rapists attacking Westeros, despoiling and defiling the land to sate their desires. But those other monarchs aren't just going to stand down when Danny shows up, so she will have to take Westeros with fire and blood. And this is what that looks like. And it's a horror show. Danny didn't commit the Red Wedding, of course, but we're seeing the death of a king who would have resisted her, the death of one of her enemies, the son of one of the usurper's dogs she loathes. This is what it would take to make her dream come true. Her own projected fantasy tableau requires this one. Her dream is also a nightmare, 
the marriage of heaven and hell, defining the labyrinth of the human heart. Neither one of these images is a lie, even though they seem to contradict each other. They achieve coherence together, truth as a mosaic of competing truths. The kings are tearing Westeros apart, and yet when one of them is killed and can no longer do that, it's being framed as a devastating tragedy. Exactly. I mean, we saw the same thing with that terrorist friend, the Baratheon, where George takes nothing away from the visceral horror of a sorceress shadow sword going through the gorget and going through his throat. And then we have in Feast, Balin Greyjoy falling from his rope bridge, aka getting thrown from it by a faceless man. That reads like a terrible fucking way to die. Even Ren, even Joffrey Baratheon's death is so agonizingly awful that it makes us pity the boy for once in all of the narrative. And we're going to talk about Young Grift next week, but one of the lies that Daenerys has to slay is the Mummer's Dragon, which means that Aegon is going to die and Danny's going to be the one who does it. And the death of a 15 or 18-year-old boy via likely dragon fire is going to be as horrible, if not worse, than what we saw with Renly, with Balin, with Joffrey. And I think it's even going to be worse than what we saw with poor Quentin's, poor Quentin at the, end of, at the end of A Dance with Dragons. And so it calls into question Danny's overall goals and trajectory. And in the wake of season eight, some hackles were raised by the implication that by fighting powerful villains in the first place, Danny was inevitably destined to go down a path that led to the indiscriminate slaughter of civilians. And I do understand the, you know, that lens, but I think this chapter demonstrates that the primary implications of Daenerys' story are for the artistic presentation of violence, not so much how we are meant to deal with real-life violence. It's not that Danny's understanding of power and violence is totally off-base. Again, that first image of Westeros currently under assault by its leaders, that is true, and it bolsters her campaign. Rather, what Danny has failed to fully understand is perspective, is how she looks through other people's eyes. You know, we've never seen Danny through anyone else's eyes. Even as other POVs mm-hmm. came to town to dance with dragons, George arranged things so we've never actually seen her through someone else's POV. That's eventually going to change. From her perspective, the usurper's dogs are all equally traitors, as was Miri Mazdur, for that matter. From Miri Mazdur's perspective, Danny is a hypocritical war criminal to whom she could not possibly owe loyalty in the first place. From Catelyn's perspective, our POV on Rob, his death is the end of the world, not the removal of a traitorous piece from the Game of Thrones, one who was wrecking havoc upon the land anyway. That question of perspective in a political sense is linked by this chapter to perspective in a narrative sense, the POV of a character or a reader, always limited. The author plays with perspective and information, controlling what we see through the doors of our perception, fantasies masquerading as reality. The Red Wedding will mean different things to different readers, as it means different things to different characters. And this is not to wash away the horror experienced by the victims, but to say that there is no singular truth that you're just going to find. In the maze of the House of the Undying, the maze of a book, the maze of our own mind, we will pursue truth and beauty forever, because they're mirages and the maze is a circle. Nothing waits at the center but a mirror and then mortality. The only escape from the Wheel of Time other than the grave is, well, fantasy. The projected image of art and faith and individual empathy. Since we're trapped inside our perspectives, condemned to see our cages but never escape them, the best we can do is is combine them. That's the act of empathy inherent to art. My aim is to make you see. The first two images we see in the House of the Undying, the story-made structure, contradict one another, but when fused by the artist's perspective, they become one truth. 
The lingering mystery from this image of the Red Wedding is why the wolf's eyes follow Danny. Like she's like it's the Mona Lisa. They follow her with mute appeal. Is she somehow meant to resolve this situation too? How could she? I mean, no theory I know of puts Danny up against the phrase at Endgame to resolve the Red Wedding. Rather, I think this moment speaks to the overall patterns at work, how all these stories are kind of colliding at once. These cycles of power and blood and revenge pay themselves out, perspectives clashing with one another. And for a moment, they line up. For a moment, these POVs on opposite sides literally see eye to eye. It's a recognition of mutual fate. We're both doomed, the dragon and the wolf. If the first image seemed to maybe metaphorically speak to Danny's situation with the one under assault, the second one seems to be reaching out to her, and the third vision will literally reach out for her. It's all part of George's exploration of the blurring borders between fantasy and reality, author and text, audience and character. These spirits pass like ships in the night, united only in the author's POV and ours. This empathy between dragon and wolf was gained only in death, and then it fades, and Danny moves on. And Danny believes that usurpers like the Starks and the Baratheons and the Lannisters, they stole her father's and her rightful throne. And she works so hard to learn how the rules and school of hard knock style when she's in Marine in a dance with dragons. Come winds and dream, the truly galling thing for Danny will be how Westeros will likely reject her and see her as her father's daughter, a mad queen, a monster. Now, I'm in the boat that I sincerely don't believe that Danny will be any of those things in any objective sense, but you kind of understand why she might be perceived as such by the people of Westeros. And when there's dragons dancing over them with death, with death brought forward by the fire and blood all around them, it's going to look a lot like the Red Wedding times a million. It's going to look a lot like these vision, this vision that Danny is seeing here. And as I recently discovered in my research travels to write that new Winds of Winter resource post, George R. Martin told Michael Clarfeld, a friend of mine, what's up, brother, after looking at his excellent map of Westeros that, quote, soon there will be fires everywhere. The Red Wedding is coming back for Danny. This is a warning for her as much as it is something that's crossing the liminal plane in order to reach her. And that's going to be a fact, a feature throughout some of my, my monologues in this episode, but also a feature throughout what Danny sees in the House of the Undying. That's a great point. Both those first two images, even if they're not directly about Danny, seem to speak metaphorically to her situation and the paths she could go down and why she could go down them. But the third vision breaks from the first two completely, speaking to Danny personally and using imagery in a considerably different fashion. The first vision of the woman under assault didn't take place anywhere in particular. It presented an image of the war from a distance on an abst abstract projected plane. The second vision takes place at the twins, but neither Danny nor the first-time reader knows that, and there are no geographic signifiers to clue you in. This third vision explicitly takes place in a setting familiar to both Danny and the reader, the house with the red door and lemon tree from Bravos. I say takes place there, but again, I don't think these are physical spaces so much as VR environments, basically. It's virtual reality. That's emphasized by how Danny's position in the room is unclear. She's not looking through the room's doorway, because Willem Derry presumably uses the doorway to enter the room. <laughs> She's looking through the fourth wall. This is a diorama. This is a movie set. She's hovering above it all, like a reader, like Bran from within the heart tree. I think his last chapter in A Dance with Dragons, I think, parallels this chapter in many ways. It's his version of The House of the Undying. Yeah, I love that chapter so much. I think that's an excellent catch on your part. And this is something that we've seen George use before, this kind of movie effect 
back in the Tower of Joy sequence, what I talked about last week. There, Ned Stark had a powerfully emotive memory of the Tower of Joy, his memories and conversations with Ares' surviving white cloaks, with a storm of rose petals blowing across a blood-streaked sky as blue as the eyes of death, while Ayana is screaming at her. And of course, all of that is brought forward by him drinking the milk of the poppy. Again, the parallels between what happens there at the Tower of Joy and what is happening here in the House of the Undying are very clear in on during this reread podcast, at the very least. And if you're going to recall from that episode from ah, a year and a half ago now, we talked about what George said about Ned's dreams. He said, I might mention, though, that Ned's account, which you refer to, was in the context of a dream and a fever dream at that. Our dreams are not always literal. Looking back on it now with your excellent idea of this being kind of this movie set, this kind of trailer, so to speak, I think your idea of Danny as the camera for a movie scene, it works beautifully with what George did for the Tower of Joy sequence for Ned. Ned is kind of not even really present in the scene. He's there. He's delivering lines of dialogue that are very like fantasy oriented that may not have actually occurred. And that here at the house, and then of course, we also have that this the colors just being vibrant, exploding into the sky red petals blowing across the, the, the sky. It's, it's glorious, glorious imagery. And here in the House of the Undying, the colors are vibrant again. The memories are nostalgic, whereas Ned's memories are quite tragic. And of course, which is tied specifically to Ned. Ned is, uh, nostalgia is not something that Ned is necessarily tempted by, except for with Robert. But as you were saying, was this actually her home? Or was this smoke and mirrors to tempt Danny to stay here at the House of the Undying? This is your new house with the red door, Daenerys Targaryen. Stay here. And be warm and comforted. Stay with us and play with us forever and ever. <laughs> and there was, there was an intimacy and a wistfulness to this image that wasn't there for the others. Because Danny knows this place, loves it, and wants it back. It's an avatar of innocence. Carved animal faces instead of the fearsome animal banners of war. These are Catalan's happy gods of her childhood as she described them back in the Stormlands. This is the only place Danny ever felt at home. This is the place that made her feel happy, secure, and whole. This is what she wants Westeros to be, as we see in that passage you spoke really well about back in Book 1. It was not the plains Danny saw then. It was King's Landing and the Great Red Keep that Egan the Conqueror had built. It was Dragonstone where she had been born. In her mind's eye they burned with a thousand lights, a fire blazing in every window. In her mind's eye, all the doors were red. The way Danny's story ended in the show cast a certain Paul over her motivations, and we got to remember that her number one goal is always finding a home. What makes that sympathetic impulse tragic is how it gets refracted through power, perspective, and prophecy. Rather than metaphorically and literally rebuilding atop the City of Bones, Danny drives ever onward and winds up making a new one. Remember the first line of the story, we should start back. And remember how Asha describes Stannis, who was in many ways the herald for Danny, a man who would never, ever turn back from his course. Danny says that if she looks back, she is lost, while the House of the Undying forces her to look back and get lost. These are the movements of her story. She's always pulling back, even as she pushes forward. It's a dance with dragons. Indeed, her story in A Dance with Dragons is all about this give-and-take process and how it rubs her raw from the inside out. It's not that she always had evil waiting inside her to emerge, so much as the failure of good leaves her alienated and desperate. The crown is a way for her to get home, not the other way around. She wants the Iron Throne so she can never be thrown out of her home again. But Westeros is not the house with the red door. The house with the red door is gone. 
Danny has lost it forever. The intoxication of visions, fantasy, and faith will not materially turn back time, nor restore our dead to us. Danny is being tempted not only by her childhood home, but by the only worthy parental figure she has ever known, Sir Willem Derry. He walks into the room, and our emotions are thrown into beautiful confusion. Willem Derry is always a figure of comfort for Danny, but we know that's not really him. It can't be. So this is uncanny, skin-crawling, like one of the faceless men imitating your loved ones. It's particularly creepy because he appears as soon as she realizes what room she's looking at, as if he's part of the environment, completing her thoughts. Oh, you know what room this is? Okay, well then Willem Derry is there because he fits that room. It's Perstian recall filtered through fantasy and horror. As I said last week, when we walk the labyrinth of the House of the Undying, we have to keep in mind David Lynch's question from Twin Peaks. Who is the dreamer? Who is controlling these images? What's the source? Well, what did Piat Pri say? Dwellers and servitors may speak to you as you go. Answer or ignore them, as you choose. But enter no room until you reach the audience chamber. Piat mentions dwellers or servitors as if there's no particular distinction. Uh, the servitors might be warlocks like him. Are there dwellers besides the Undying in the House of the Undying? If so, that recasts what the House of the Undying actually is. It's not just an opium den for this one cabal of sorcerers, but a sort of a hub and meeting place for seekers of transcendent knowledge from all over. It might even be a thin place, a crossover point between the material world and the astral plane. I talked about Christian mystic Emanuel Swedenborg last week. He believed reality was divided into the physical and spiritual worlds. But Blake and Huxley countered that, no, they are one. And countless traditions speak of these convergence points, caves and shrines and social clubs for spirits. And they also appear constantly in the pop cultural world around A Song of Ice and Fire, the Black Lodge in Twin Peaks, where spirits dwell at right angles to mankind, or the bathhouse in Spirited Away, to pick a somewhat more gentle reference point. <laughs> the first two images Danny saw here might have been just that, images, as Pietri does describe them. But Willem Derry in this one, is he alive? Is that somebody? Is this one of the <laughs> dwellers and servitors disguised as Willem? If so, it's weaponizing nostalgia. It's turning Danny's love against her by stealing the sweetest parts of her heart and deploying them as a lure. And you can see this as a cynical view of art, like the fiery ladder in Danny's previous chapter. That which makes your heart burst with longing, the fantasies that capture emotional truth, they're lying to you. They're traps. The House of the Undying is a dazzling hall of mirrors, offering insight, but no satisfaction the infinite power of images rooting you in place as you slowly decay. Danny almost gives in and walks through this door. Now, she had no temptation to enter the previous two rooms, and, and why would she? Those images are horrifying. But this is true temptation of the type undergone by shamanic and messianic characters. Negate your hero's journey, return to the womb. This is life and love, not death and hate. This is what she wants, a hand reaching out. She edges forward and then pulls back and runs. Because Danny knows that Willem Derry is dead, the sweet old bear. He died long ago, or she wouldn't be here. She wouldn't have gone through any of it. It reminds me of this quote from Nabokov's Pale Fire, a book I'm going to talk more about later in the episode. For as we know from dreams, it is so hard to speak to our dear dead. They disregard our apprehension, queasiness, and shame. The awful sense that they're not quite the same. 
and our school chum killed in a distant war is not surprised to see us at his door, and in a blend of jauntiness and gloom, points at the puddles in his basement room. The heartwarming image of home and family is beneath the surface an image of loss and pain like the previous two, the third painting in a triptych. The first two showed her the triumph of death. This one shows her paradise lost. This world is forsaken, and you're left with rape and murder. This is the marriage of heaven and hell, the collision of the angel and devil within the human soul captured in art. These two halves do not even have the decency to stay, stay distinct from one another. They're forever intertwining within us. A good act does not wash out the bad, nor a bad act the good. They make each other possible. The love in Danny's heart, her need to secure that love and have it returned, is what drives her on to her destiny of fire and blood. George is showing us the keystone image of Danny's arc. If the House of the Undying is his creative process, he's demonstrating how this image haunts his mind as it haunts hers and now ours. Art as a mutual torment of voyeurism. The past is dead, and Danny knows it. But her vision of her future is haunted by that past and its unknowability as she chases it around the wheel of time. She doesn't know Westeros, nor its people, so her understanding of it is clouded by her perception and her own fears and desires. In her mind's eye, it becomes the house with the red door. It becomes that lemon tree, those carved animal faces, Willem Derry's wrinkled hand reaching out saying everything is safe and okay. That's all she ever had. She runs away from it now. But the House of the Undying moves in a circle, as does the story shape it stands for, and she will be brought back here again and again. Oh man, that's so wonderful. And I think you, you spoke so beautifully about how the House of the Red Door it intermixes with Danny's desires and what her future actually holds for as well. And I would also be remiss not to mention how this chapter provides glimpses of Danny's backstory and the house with the red door continuing, of course, to be in Bravos. No, I'm never going to give up this line of thought ever in my entire <laughs> life. I apologize for nothing in advance. And you can go all the way back to our fourth episode of the podcast, fourth episode entitled The House with the Red Doors in Bravos. Who named that episode? <laughs> It was me. Um, to hear us talking about this topic in our in our depth section. Here I want to point out a couple aspects that point to the house with the red door being in Bravos that come up specifically in this chapter and how they interplay with later revelations that came from outside of actually the published novels. First, there's the infamous lemon tree. Y'all remember that? You probably should. Danny sees that here in this chapter, but in Arya's first feast chapter, Arya states that there were no trees in the city as the city of Bravos was made of stone. Meanwhile, in the Winds of Winter Mercy sample chapter, one of Harris Swift's guards says there are no orange trees in Bravos as the climate was too cold for citrus. And then finally, in 2015, George R. Martin answered a fan questioning how lemon trees shouldn't really be able to grow on Bravos by saying, George, say, George is saying this, very, very perceptive of you. Yes, it does point to, well, that would be telling. This, of course, has led to many people thinking that the house with the red door couldn't be in Bravos and it's instead in Dorne, Old Town, Lys, someplace else. I these lands known for their for for oranges and Dorne specifically being known for overripe blood red oranges. However, in Samuel Tarley's as Samuel Tarley notes in a Feast for Crows, Samuel three trees did not grow in Bravos, quote safe in the courts and the gardens of the mighty. Meanwhile, the Sea Lord of Bravos was signatory to the pact between Oberyn Martell and Willem Derry that sealed the original Ariane Viserys Targaryen marriage alliance. And then, when the lands of ice and fire, George R. R. Martin's Atlas of a Song of Ice and Fire was published in 2012. 
One of the maps featured an extensive look at Bravos, and fans found something interesting. And I actually have it in the, in the notes for those patrons who could read it and, uh, when, when this publishes on Monday. On an island in the middle of the harbor was a large palace with a thicket of trees on the north side of the palace. This palace with trees was none other than the Sea Lord of Bravos's palace. And here is where it gets even more interesting. This chapter has Daenerys seeing animal carvings on the beams as you were pointing out. And then in A Game of Thrones, we go back to Arya's fourth chapter. Cyril Farrell tells Arya about the Sea Lord's palace, stating that the Sea Lord kept a menagerie at the palace with wondrous animals in it. Getting back to the Lands of Ice and Fire, originally, the Wooded Isle and the Menagerie were not featured in an early draft of the Sea Lord's Palace. But George R. R. Martin caught this and pointed out to the artist, but an artist by the name of Jonathan Roberts, and stated that he wanted that Wooded Isle and the Menagerie drawn back into the map. These were important details for George, and coming onto the scene with the house from the House of the Red Door, we can perhaps see why. To me, this reads as evidence that Danny and Viserys were housed at none other than the Sea Lord of Bravos's palace while they were in Bravos. And But then that brings up the question of the significance of this revelation, why this is so important, why George is withholding this information. And here I'll turn it over to our friend and yours, Curtsy While You Tweet, It Saves Time, who wrote a fantastic theory about the significance of this, holding this back in 2018, in which he said, One thing I thought of immediately is what if the last Targaryens were part of the Menagerie? Seems a bit bizarre, and probably way off the mark, but for some reason, as I read through those quotes, I was reminded of the Twilight Zone episode where humans are trapped in a zoo on a foreign planet. That would be a devastating revelation for Daenerys to find out that the House of the Red Door wasn't a home at all. It was not a source of comfort at any length of time for Daenerys Targaryen. Instead, it was a cage for her and for Viserys, the last of the exotic Targaryens. And that revelation may very well help turn Danny away from her nostalgia for the House of the Red Door and towards a less than nostalgic outlook of making all doors red. Danny hates the thought of being kept and controlled for very good reason. She always reacts very strongly against them. I don't think she's, you know, going to exactly chill on that count when we get into the winds of winter. And so here Danny runs away. She runs past countless doors, narrative paths forking off into infinity. Choices not taken, futures unmade, and then a pair of doors swing open. They're bronze, grander than the rest. More important, more significant. More on George's mind? As he writes it, Danny feels compelled to look. The first two visions spoke to larger political conflicts. The third vision spoke to her internal personal struggles. And this one fuses both. It is an image of apocalypse, the unfettered ego embracing the worst of both political and magical power, the double helix structure of a clash of kings. But it is also a glimpse of her father and the fate of her family. It's the keystone image of House Targaryen. They climbed, reached, and fell. And this is where I have to bring up the most obvious reference point for this chapter, just as Lovecraft was for the Forsaken. It is Shining Time. It's the Shining Time <laughs> Station. And when you talk about The Shining, you are, of course, talking about two very different things. You're talking about Stephen King's book, The Shining, and Stanley Kubrick's movie, The Shining, which Stephen King quite famously hates. They're very different, but both borrow the form of the labyrinth from the Greeks and Borges and apply it to the modern horror tropes of the haunted house and the domestic abuse narrative. It's a vision quest rooted in patriarchal control. The book establishes how the Overlook Hotel functions as a repository of bloody histories, evil sinking in deep and leaving its mark until it forms a kind of consciousness, one that seeks out the young psychic Danny to join the hive mind and, and suck away all his power. Personal demons, though, 
like alcoholism and child abuse, are metaphorical ghosts in the story, the ones that haunt us without any spiritual intervention required. And you can see the connection to the House of the Undying, the psychic Danny and the shiny becomes the tripping Danny in this story. She's plagued by both sorcery and her own memories, and the sins of the father are recurring for both Danny Torrance and Daenerys Targaryen. Those concepts remain in the movie version of The Shining, but Kubrick changed the focus and meaning of the antagonist, and so the human characters have to change as well. In the movie, the hotel doesn't want Danny. It wants his father, Jack, the alcoholic child abuser in question. It feeds not on Danny's psychic powers, but on Jack's bloodlust. The temptation of Jack is a means to an end in the book, the way for the hotel to get at Danny, but it's the whole point in the movie. Danny's psychic powers are just kind of there and don't really help him. King complains that Kubrick had stripped Jack of his nuance, his struggle, as he tries to resist being his worst possible self, and that's an accurate critique, but Kubrick was aiming for another insight entirely, that there is no real inner struggle in Jack, only the animal id waiting to be unleashed. Jack is a wannabe author. He takes the painfully isolated position of winter caretaker at the Overlook because it will supposedly give him time to finish his book. Yet for days on end, he comes up with nothing. It's his awareness of his own creative deficiencies that break him, not the hotel itself. The most revealing change in adaptation was Kubik replacing the topiary animals that come to life in the book with a sinister hedge maze outside the hotel. As Jack snaps... His wife and son are outside running through the maze, and Jack looks down on a model of the maze, and he sees them in there. It's as if they're running around in his own mind, a maze like the hotel, and very crucially, there is nothing in the middle of that maze. It's empty because there's nothing inside Jack. He went looking for creative inspiration inside himself and came up empty. <laughs> when his wife Wendy finds out what he's been working on this whole time, it's just all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy over and over and over and over again. That profound emptiness at the heart of all those twists and turns is what Kubrick unearthed in The Shining, and he had to kill and resurrect Stephen King's story in order to do it. Again, the connection to The House of the Undying is clear. It's a maze that only half exists in the real world. The true labyrinth is an inner one. Your mind made reality all around you. You see images of wonder and terror as you rush around this maze. There's, there's an infamous moment in the movie of The Shining when Wendy suddenly just sees a man in like this bizarre furry costume giving a blowjob to a well-dressed businessman. And they both look at her like, how dare you interrupt us? <laughs> you can interpret this image, as many have, but what it really signifies is inexplicability. The human mind running up against the limits of perception. Again, they're just staring back at her impassively, menacingly. They're staring right into the camera as if we're the observers, caught looking, caught reading. Danny Torrance's wild, trippy visions in The Shining, just like Danny's here, ultimately point at the mundane realities of death. Nothing is waiting in the maze but mortality. Underneath the House of the Undying is that dilapidated hallway and the City of Bones. Underneath the Overlook Hotel is a Native American burial site and so many covered-up crimes like Jack's. And in this vision... We see the last great covered-up crime of A Song of Ice and Fire. When the last Dragon King fell from the tower, he was prepared to take everyone with him. The first thing Danny sees through the doors in this vision of her father are skulls. They're the skulls of dragons, looking down from the walls like her, like the faces in the weirwoods, seeing, watching, and doing nothing. 
The Kingsguard observing Eris's atrocities and letting them happen is something George returns to over and over again because it presents looking as a moral act. They watched as Eris descended into dragon dreams, trying to bring back those skulls on the walls so they could do more than watch. And if Eris failed to bring back the dragons, as he probably would have, well then let Robert be king of charred bones and cooked meat. Let him rule a city of bones. My world will end not with a whimper, but with a bang. The traitors want my city, but I'll give them naught but ashes. If I can't have Westeros, nobody can. Obviously, we will have more to say, come a Storm of Swords, Jamie 5, when what we see here is explicated in full. The first-time reader might be able to realize that this is Eris. It's obviously the Iron Throne, he has Targaryen hair, and we do know about the wildfire from Tyrion chapters, but this is way too scattered for a first-time reader to put together. Even outside that context, rung free of the pattern like the rest of these images, it carries a foreboding weight in its presentation. These visions of death sink deep into the story's infrastructure. They are the pillars on which the rest of it sits, disguised but ever lurking. As you were saying, they, they, they snake their way into your subconscious and then lie there and wait. George unearths these primal moments, defining images. He's shown us the war, the major plot structure of the books. He's shown us the Red Wedding, the most distinctive and devastating scene. He has shown us the keystone image for the character arc of our POV Daenerys. And now, with the Mad King, he shows us the abyss of power. The worst use to which it can possibly be put. Resentment and paranoia fueling a fire to claim thousands. Yet because it's only a fragmentary vision, a passing image out of context... There's no way for Danny to understand it. She can't appreciate the moral significance of her observation, even as Drogon shrieks and digs his claws and tries to get her to understand it. She can't. She can't internalize and learn from it, so she is doomed to repeat it. It's the same logic of The Shining. What Danny's third eye shows her is actually something very intimate. Paranoia and death within her family. Yet these images are inherently incomplete and so cannot help her. Just like Danny, he can just scrawl red rum, murder backward on the wall, and it's just a code. That's all he can come up with. It's another mirror what Danny is seeing here with her father. The past passing through the present on its way to claim the future. And even cleansed perception can't alter her doom. Danny has accessed prophetic truth, as we have been shown the backstory. But in both cases, it's not enough to help us truly achieve clarity. This vision keeps snaking its way to the surface of A Song of Ice and Fire, a nightmare always on the verge of tipping back into reality, power as a mass sacrifice. Ooh, that's so good. And I, you're absolutely right about Danny not recognizing her father there. And why would she? She never met him as she was born on Dragonstone when her father had died in King's Landing. So this is one of the scenes which only has resonance to the reader alone, right? It's just a wink from George to us, a revelation that people who have read Jamie's fifth chapter of Storm of Swords will recognize be blown away by. I don't think so, at least not entirely. Without the crucial context of knowing who Ares the second Targaryen was, this scene has always read to me like a warning to Danny about her future and what it means to embrace fire and blood. It's almost as if George was reaching across page, time, and wonder to warn Danny not to do the thing that he knows that she will do down the road. But it's like George has talked about in 2014, he can't turn away from his course now. As he said, I've been planning all these clues that the butler did it. Then you're halfway through a series and suddenly thousands of people have figured out that the butler did it. And then you say the chambermaid did it. No, you can't do that. 
George, I think, has been seeding clues for Daenerys to fulfill what her father, Aerys, attempted at the end of Robert's Rebellion since the Game of Thrones. And of course, this has been a fairly old theory that Danny will, that Danny will burn King's Landing going back to the 90s, I think. But I kind of think he knows that's what he has to do with Danny, but it's going to be emotionally painful for him to have her actually commit that act. George has stated many times that he loves, quote, all of his children, especially his point of view characters, but he seems to have an especially soft spot for Daenerys Targaryen. George also had a soft spot for two other characters, Rob Stark, Catelyn Stark. But as he said in 2013 in a BBC interview, he knew where their story was leading. I knew it was coming, but it was very hard to write and was the hardest thing I've ever wrote. I went back and made myself write that scene because it was painful to kill these characters I, cre- I created and lived with for so long. So George, I think, is still going to write Danny burning King's Landing, even as he tries to warn her across space, time, and wonder not to follow the example of her dad. Again, as we've been emphasizing over and over again in this analysis, this is an extraordinarily meta chapter, even for George himself. It's showing us the, the wonder of narrative and how powerful it is, and also how it's just always incomplete, and it's never exactly what we want and need it to be. And that, that applies so beautifully to the, to the final image in these, this series of images we're covering in this chunk of the chapter. We meet at last, the character hidden from us behind a veil of memory and tragedy, the closest a Song of Ice and Fire has to a prime mover, Rhaegar Targaryen. It's basically impossible to overstate Rhaegar's importance to the plot, themes, and major character arcs of a Song of Ice and Fire, yet he's gone before it starts. His actions dominate the backstory. His ghost haunts so many characters, large and small. He embodies the bruised romanticism at the heart of it all. Rhaegar seems to stand in for everything George finds compelling in fantasy, as well as mythology and storytelling in general. The melancholy Byronic prince, born in grief and dying in battle with love on his lips, forever forever singing bittersweetly of his own prophesied doom. Rhaegar is kept at a distance, seen always through the rose or blood-colored glasses of others. He is a projection like the rest of these images in the House of the Undying. The man is lost inside the myth, a creature of song. What makes him work emotionally is that he seems to have realized that. As Jojen knows the manner of his own death, Rhaegar seems to have perceived the story shape around him, seen through it as Danny is doing now. Judging from how Aemon and Barristan talk about him, Rhaegar's life was forever changed by his belief that prophecy had ensnared his family whole. Exactly. And George's best touches when it comes to prophecy and magic, prophecy especially, is that knowing or suspecting the future, knowing the shape of it, doesn't lead characters in the story to happiness. It instead imbues them with a sense of melancholy, foreboding about things to come. And this is key to characters like Jojen and especially Rhaegar Targaryen. Again, this simply isn't George winking at the audience and providing information that only impacts us as readers. The vision of Rhaegar and the interaction Danny bears witness to is a warning to the future Dragon Queen about knowing the future. I'm reminded of Quaith's warning to Danny to beware of all, after, of course, she gives Danny an ambiguous prophecy about where she needs to go and what she's going to need to see in order to get to the place that she needs to go. So Daenerys should be aware of the example of Rhaegar before her, and that doom that he felt and that doom that he seemed to have lived in, his lived experience, that came, I think, primarily possibly, I will talk about this a little bit later, through his belief in prophecy. We will talk more about what Rhaegar thought was going to happen and what he was trying to do about it towards the end of the episode. He may have come to the conclusion that the petty wars of men do not matter when set next to the potential end of the world. And he's not wrong about that, but simply reaching that conclusion is insufficient. It doesn't resolve political struggles on its own. 
Rhaegar realized that when it was too late, telling Jaime before he rode off to the Battle of the Trident, When this battle's done, I mean to call a council. Changes will be made. I meant to do it long ago, but... Well, it does no good to speak of roads not taken. We shall talk when I return. And that is such a haunting line because Rhaegar himself became a road not taken, guaranteeing his own doom even while trying to escape it. Whatever he wanted to accomplish was erased, not only by his own downfall, but that of his family. Everything stays secret. We can only guess. This vision provides us the clearest look at who Rhaegar Targaryen really was. This is Rhaegar Targaryen as he exists in George's mind. He is introduced naming his son, Aegon, the ultimate Targaryen name, the name that signifies kingship, the wheel of time come round again. Elia Martell is there as well, nursing the babe. This is the closest we get to her, also, an innocent victim of all these machinations when the bottom finally falls out. And she asks if Rhaegar will write a song for their son. A fantasy, a diversion like A Song of Ice and Fire. But Rhaegar responds that his son already has a song. And his song is his life. His destiny, the path he has already begun walking without knowing it. We are not separate from story. We are inside it. Aegon Targaryen is the prince that was promised, and his is the song of ice and fire. And with that statement, the fourth wall falls completely. Rhaegar knows he's a character in a story called A Song of Ice and Fire. <laughs> he has interpreted signs like the reader has, especially in this chapter. Rhaegar has reached his conclusions incorrect, as so many of our conclusions about the story are, locked as we are behind the doors of perception. Rhaegar's son, in fact, is going to die horribly, very soon. Rhaegar's wife and daughter will die. He will die. He lives on only in story. But all men must die, and we're all just stories in the end if we're lucky. This is the only time in the series that the title phrase appears, which, which lends this moment so much weight. We have accessed pure truth, the wisdom promised us, the heart of story and meaning and identity and myth. It's the still point of the turning world, the moment in which past and present and future all collapse into the individual perception. This is the whole story compressed. Rhaegar looks up and seems to see Danny. His eyes burn through time and space like they burned through story. Divine sight lets us see truth. Or does it? <laughs> there must be one more, Rhaegar says. The dragon has three heads. As rereaders, we know he will come to fixate on fathering that child with Lyanna Stark, presumably completing the Song of Ice and Fire to fulfill prophecy. Again, we'll talk a little bit about it in a bit. And indeed, this scene is written with such care as to suggest that, hey, this could be Rhaegar and Lyanna. The woman isn't named, and the babe is another Aegon if the show turns out to be right about Jon's name. We know it's Elia, of course, because Rhaegar says he needs a third child, so this is before Lyanna. But the ambiguity is built in, as with the prince that was promised prophecy, because George is trying to make you uncertain about what any of this exactly means. Exactly. And that ambiguity is so crucial and important for us to understand, because we're, we're doing this podcast, we're recording this episode in 2020, after there's been nearly 30 years of fan analysis and fan theorizing and fan discussion about the series. But back in the early days of the Song of Ice and, fandom, Song of Ice and Fire fandom, that wasn't necessarily the case. But... Fans were also able to instant message George R. Martin on AOL. Seriously, there are chats of George R. Martin talking on AOL with fans back in the day. And George would respond to those people. 
One of those fans, one of those people was a fan by the name who went by Revenshi, who asked who the couple was in the vision. As you're talking about, it's you could potentially see it as Lyanna and Rhaegar, right? And George responded that this was actually Rhaegar and Elia, which, duh, for us now in 2020. But back then, there was discussion as to, again, whether it was Rhaegar and Lyanna or someone else. Regardless, the interesting point that was brought up in this chat from 1999 was about the child. And George R. Martin said that, quote, the child from the scene is dead. Again, this is very early on in the fandom, and George R. Martin may have had second thoughts, or more likely fake second thoughts about Aegon being dead. But at least in 1999, George R. Martin stated definitively that Aegon Targaryen, the son of Rhaegar Targaryen, was dead. And Danny thinks that not only does Rhaegar see her, but he might be talking to her or about her. And why shouldn't she think that? Is she not a head of the dragon, a figure of power and prophecy? Artworks are dreams that beg us to wake up. And my favorite books and plays and movies are often those that acknowledge we don't know how to wake up. And anyway, we don't want to. We tend to prefer the fantasy. Such is the conclusion reached by Vladimir Nabokov, the Russian author who could sustain House of the Undying level writing for the length of an entire book. I reread his masterpiece, Pale Fire, in preparation for this episode, and it was even better than I remember it being. It definitely it ranks with Ulysses and Gravity's Rainbow and all those lists of greatest novels of the 20th century, and it definitely belongs there. Nestled within the book, Pale Fire, is a poem entitled Pale Fire, written by a character named John Shade, like Shade of the Evening, you could say. And the poem opens like this. I was the shadow of the waxwing slain by the false azure in the window pane. I was the smudge of ashen fluff, and I lived on, flew on in the reflected sky. And in four quick lines, Nabokov communicates a coherent perspective on art, nature, death, and the glory and tragedy of man caught between all of them. Art is the windowpane with its false azure. It seems to be a window onto reality, but it's inaccessible, and if you try to step into it, it will smash you and kill you. You are reduced to a shadow, a smudge of ash. And yet, you live, you fly, in the reflection. You sought to master art, but you can only become it. Nature grounds you in mortality. It's only your reflection that lives on, the image, the memory. It's the very definition of a bittersweet ending. And Nabokov could have been describing the house of the undying, full of window panes with false azure, threatening to reduce Danny to ash and fluff. We all end that way. But Danny will live on in the reflected sky that is a song of ice and fire. As long as, long as there is an, an observer, an eye, she will survive. Yet if we zoom out on the poem Pale Fire to the rest of the novel with that same name, we reach the same realization as zooming out on the images of the House of the Undying. We see that these images are being manipulated and corrupted. The rest of the novel, Pale Fire, is a foreword to the poem and then a lengthy analysis of it, longer than the poem itself. It's purportedly written by a man named Charles Kinboat, who claims to be a colleague of Shade's, honoring his work by publishing it after Shade's untimely death. Shade himself has become the shadow of the waxwing slain, living on in the reflected sky. He's at the mercy of Kinboat, and Kinboat is very much an unreliable narrator. If you read between the lines, analyzing Kinboat as he analyzes Shade, he starts to sound like a madman, like the POVs of House of Leaves. First of all, he's not, like, analyzing the poem in any reasonable, helpful way. He's just mostly talking about himself and completely missing the point. He keeps talking about the fictional kingdom of Zembla, like, semblance, you get it? And hinting that he is its true ruler in exile. Is that true? Who knows? We're at the mercy of his perspective. 
Kinberg claims that the man who killed Shade had come to kill him, but the tone of his writing and the gaps in his story call that into question. It even remains ambiguous whether Nabokov intends for us to appreciate the sensual titular poem on its own merits, or if we're supposed to consider it kind of mediocre and embarrassing. So the entire book is a distorted mirror, not just the opening lines of the poem that make the manipulation clear. We as readers are waxwings slain, running headlong into the windowpane of art like birds, thinking we can get through it. Rhaegar misinterprets prophecy. Danny misinterprets Rhaegar's misinterpretation. She thinks he's Viserys at first, because Viserys is who she knows, just as she couldn't recognize all of their father. We are being shown how the divine image of truth breaks down in the human mind, the observing eye, as we try and fail to read it. We love story because we are story. It's what we're made of. But stories don't die. And we do. Rhaegar picks up his harp and plays as the winds of winter take them all away. As someone wrote in Pale Fire, whether it's Shade or Kinboat or Nabokov himself, someone wrote this. And when we lost our child, I knew there would be nothing. No self-styled spirit would touch a keyboard of dry wood to rap out her pet name. No phantom would rise gracefully to welcome you and me in the dark garden near the shagbark tree. What is that funny creaking, do you hear? It's the shutter on the stairs, my dear. These images are so, so, so powerful, but they're not enough. They will never be enough for Danny. Word, man. I mean, that's that's just outstanding literary analysis. And again, placing this chapter within the context of the overall oeuvre of, of fantasy fiction in general. And I think... Yeah, I, with with Rhaegar as being this doomed prophetic figure that we'll talk about momentarily, I, I do think that there is this aspect of his misinterpretation of, of prophecy that ends up being fatal, as we'll talk about. And that's just heartbreaking because I think it speaks to something that's going to be relevant to Danny's future in the story. And I think it's going to be relevant to the end game of all of A Song of Ice and Fire. But again, I'll save some of those thoughts here for just a few minutes. And I think that about takes us to our foreshadowing and groundwork. So, Emmett, what is the foreshadowing and groundwork for this part of the House of the Undying? No. <laughs> no. Okay. Okay. As we well, said last week, on. folks, we're not doing foreshadowing and groundwork for the House of the Undying because the, the House of the Undying is foreshadowing and groundwork. There's like the, yes. we'd have to completely torture the structure of these episodes. We'd have nothing to talk about for the first part of this episode if we left it to foreshadowing and groundwork. So we will resume the normal structure on that when we get to non-freaky, trippy chapters in the series. Mm -hmm. So we're going to shift right into our uh, theory slash discussion portion of this episode. And that is to ask the unanswerable question of what exactly Rhaegar was trying to accomplish. Danny's vision in this chapter is the first indication the reader gets that Rhaegar was heavily involved in the magical side of the story. He's mostly been part of the, the political and romantic side up to this point. He's been called the last dragon. He's an impressive figure that was loathed by Robert because of Lyanna, but he was beloved by many. After book one sets that foundation, George starts to dig deeper into Rhaegar's motivations. Barristan describes to Danny how Rhaegar changed his whole life trajectory one day on a whim based on what he read in some ancient books about who he was supposed to be. I suppose I must be a warrior. Barristan also says Rhaegar did not have it in him to be happy. He was deeply depressed, haunted by the grief of his birth at Summerhall. But was that all? Was it the past depressing Rhaegar or the future? Was Rhaegar depressed by his prophecy doom? Or was it depression that caused him to take refuge in prophecy? 
As with the images in the House of the Undying, I think it's both. It's one feeding into the other, changeable as flame, to quote Maester Aemon. And according to Aemon, Rhaegar drew in prophetic signs, similar to the comet we see in this book, to reach the conclusion that he was the prince that was promised. As Aemon tells us, and as we see in the House of the Undying, Rhaegar later came to believe that his son, the would-be Aegon VI, was actually the prince that was promised. So who's this prince that was promised, and what did Rhaegar have in mind regarding him? Now, the prince that was promised next comes up in Melisandre's monologues in the Storm of Swords about Stannis as a messianic figure, which suggests he might be the same as Azor Ahai. And this connection is bolstered at the Wall when Melisandre describes the coming battle against darkness, the Azor Ahai prophecy, and Aemon recalls the ancient prophecy of the prince that was promised. And Melisandre doesn't, like, say, no, 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 that's a different guy. She says, yep, that's Stannis, he's right here. So perhaps Rhaegar saw the darkness coming, maybe even the others themselves coming, and wanted House Targaryen to be prepared to defeat them. Fire melts ice. Yet Rhaegar never mentions the others specifically. That's never shown or indicated to us. The only clue we get in that regard is that Rhaegar thought his prophetic role had something to do with the North, with the Song of Ice and Fire, and eventually with Lyanna. So it seems like Rhaegar wanted to fuse these elements together, Song of Ice and Fire, to protect Westeros, maybe from apocalyptic extremes of either one, that he maybe wanted to stop the others and reform House Targaryen. Some people have suggested that he prophetically glimpsed as far ahead as uh, the downfall and doom of his own family, and I disagree with that, because Rhaegar says here that the dragon has three heads as if it's a key plank in his worldview. And given that he named his first two children, Rhaenys and Aegon, it seems likely he was trying to recreate the OG Targaryen trio with his kids. And I agree with your perspective that Rhaegar saw his own, did not see his actual his own doom in the, in the doom of his family necessarily. I think that he was likely had plans to go on there, but he may have had real true prophetic insights with regards to the dragon having three heads. The irony is that he thought it was Rhaenys, Aegon, and another, who is this other? Well, well, it's John. But the prophecy wasn't intended for them. George likes to tell this apocryphal story from the Wars of the Roses that I'll quote here in full because it's both a good story and also speaks to this idea of prophecy in A Song of Ice and Fire. There once was one lord who had been prophesied that he would die beneath the walls of a certain castle, and he was superstitious at that, at that sort of walls, so he never came anywhere near that castle. He stayed thousands of leagues away from that particular castle because of the prophecy. However, he was killed in the first battle of St. Paul de Vence, and when they found him dead, he was outside an inn whose sign was the picture of that castle. So, you know, that's the way prophecies come true in unexpected ways. So at the very least, the three heads of the dragon prophecy was never, I guess, organically intended for all of his children. I guess John's probably being the sole exception. But it's still going to come true all the same, just in an unexpected way that Rhaegar never actually foresaw. As I quoted above, Rhaegar also seems to have intended to win the Battle of the Trident, and then call a council to depose his unfit father once and for all. So that doesn't sound to me like someone who is on board with the fall of House Targaryen. Rhaegar still seems to see his family as a potential vessel for good. With that in mind, I think the tragic structure here might be that Rhaegar didn't reckon with how his family could tear itself apart from the inside. First with his father's madness undoing everything for which Rhaegar had hoped, then with Viserys passing on the impossible dream of home to Daenerys, and finally with Rhaegar's own secret son Jon planting a knife in the heart of Rhaegar's sister Daenerys. Rhaegar is a far nobler sort of Targaryen than his father, no question about it, and there is an argument to be made that Westeros would have been better off with him as king than with Robert. But he too is a victim of perspective. 
He saw just enough through his keyhole, his doors of perception, to convince him that he knew more than he did. And so he fell victim to that which he couldn't have seen coming and yet made possible. Hmm. And since season eight, a lot of the conversation around Danny has centered on her following in her father's footsteps. But Danny is ultimately Rhaegar, at least as much as she is Eris, in that her efforts to save the world are inextricable from how she dooms it. You were bringing this up before, but Jorah and Barristan make this point about Daenerys and seeing Rhaegar in her rather than Eris. And they intend this as a, as a compliment to Danny as they view Rhaegar quite favorably. But these compliments should raise our hackles as readers a bit. Rhaegar's fixation on prophecy, his sense of doom brought about by his desire to bring the prince that was promised into being, that contribute, but of course did not cause Robert's Rebellion, that brought about the destruction of most of his family and his aims to forestall, his potential aims to forestall the coming doom. Another character who has been, another character has been fed prophecy by Dragon Dreams, by Miri Mazdor, by Quaith, by the House of the Undying, the place we're in this week and next, and probably someday down the road by Makoro and Marwyn the Mage. So I full heartedly agree with you that Danny is following in, that Danny is following in Eris's footsteps as much as she's following in Rhaegar's, because her belief in prophetic destiny will ultimately lead to her own demise and the end of House Targaryen as a whole, except for John, I guess, much as it did with Rhaegar Targaryen. There has to be this this kind of contradictory dualist approach where you don't want to remove your characters from free will and you want them to make their own decisions. But at the same time, those decisions have to lead them to the prophetic outcome, which does imply they had no choice. So I think George does a great job of, of you know threading that needle where he wants his characters to have those big dramatic choice moments that the audience feels. While also establishing in chapters like this, like the end game's written, you know, I may garden differently along the way, but I know where these characters are headed. And that is a sense of, of destiny and doom that hangs over characters like Danny and Rhaegar. And there is a sense of, of real grief and tragedy to them that I think is not present for someone like Eris or, you know, Magor. Like, you know, I think there are definitely decisions that Rhaegar and Daenerys made that I recoil from, but there, there is a sense of what could have been with them that I think is, is, very, is very beautifully conveyed in this chapter. I absolutely agree. And I think this is a chapter that will continue to spark our own imagination as well as George's as he barrels his way towards the completion of A Song of Ice and Fire. And of course, we'll be writing about Danny in The Wind's Winter and Dream of Spring likely as well. And of course, her endgame in the series. And I think that about wraps up for this second of three parts on A Clash of Kings Daenerys 4. As always, thank you so much for listening and thank you to you all who are watching this episode live. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts you can check out our patreon at patreon.com slash notacast a-s-o-i-a-f you can follow us on twitter at notacast a-s-o-i-a-f or shoot us an email at notacast a-s-o-i-a-f at gmail.com you can find me at poor quentin on twitter or at poorquentin.com and you can find me at brenda beefish on twitter brenda beefish on reddit and my website is wars and politics vice and fire dot wordpress.com we want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Red Relu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers. Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle. Septon Marybald, the Shoeless Sage. Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood. Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets. Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson. Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal. Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood. Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill. Sir Way, of course. Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore. Lord Mark Connington, heir to Griffin's Roost. Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens. Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and de Morgan. 
Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Fray Pies, Septon Merrifull, Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wilder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Ryan Noy, Forger of the Mighty Hammer and Keeper of the King's Anvil, Lord Young of the Ghost Woods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Lord DK, former window washer of the Winterfell Glass Gardens, and our newest High Lords and Ladies, please welcome them all, Sir Smallpaw, Guardian of the Stonehaven, Defender of Dunatar Castle, Septon T-Bone, and Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids. So thank you so much to all our High Lords and Ladies for your support, and a special welcome to Sir Small, Septon T-Bone, and the Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids. Yeah, thank you folks very much for your support. Thank you to all of our high lords and men ladies. And just a special shout out to Refined Wrangler of the Icy Arachnids. I was actually going through Patreon uh, and, and doing some work for the uh, upcoming merchandise thing. And I noticed that you had messaged us with your name back in like May, I want to say, maybe even April, as far back as that. So that's my culpa on my part for not uh, getting you back in the day. But we are correcting that now. We'll be correcting it going forward. So thank you to you for your support. And thank you to all of our high lords and ladies for your support always so join us next week for our third and final episode on a clash of kings daenerys 4 yeah cross your fingers in which danny encounters the undying at long last that's gonna be so cool right heck yeah uh i you know, again like i was saying there's the, the visions in, in this part of the chapter are so emotional and distinct but there's something so powerful about what when you see the undying first in their disguises and then as they really are so we're not running out of the steam yet Folks, plenty to say next week, I assure you. Cannot wait for that, sir. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to all of our patrons for supporting us. Thank you again to those of you who watched our live stream. And we'll see you all next week.